I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. Schlosser can be described as the least known famous art historian. We can call him that. In this episode, I speak with art historian Thomas DeCosta Kaufman about Julius von Schlosser's influential 1908 text, Art and Curiosity Cabinets of the Late Renaissance. Julius von Schlosser's Art and Curiosity Cabinets of the Late Renaissance, published in 1908, was the first study to interpret 16th and 17th century cabinets of wonder as precursors to the modern museum. Schlosser was born in 1866. His provocative and landmark text was concerned with princely collections in Central Europe that contained such artifacts as goldsmithery, ivories, clocks, and cut stone vessels, together with jewels, sculpture, paintings, and books. Animal skins, shells, and other natural specimens sat alongside scientific instruments and items of popular culture from lands far from Europe. Schlosser's text on these collections was recently published by the Getty Research Institute in an English translation for the first time. To mark this occasion, I sat down with the volume's editor, Thomas DeCosta Kaufman, the Frederick Marquand Professor of Art and Archaeology at Princeton University, to discuss the character and importance of this distinguished text. Thank you, Tom, for speaking with me in this podcast episode. Now, Julius von Schlosser's text, Art and Curiosity Cabinets of the Late Renaissance, was first published in 1908. Tell us the circumstances of its initial publication and why the Getty Research Institute is publishing it now in a new translation. Well, I think that um, it was published out of Schlosser's um, involvement with the collections in Vienna, which were then the imperial and royal collections of uh, the all-highest imperial house, which is, uh, gives you some flavor of the time. And um, he was the curator of the collection of what was called uh, Sculpture and Applied Arts. And that collection was the first one in which the words Kunst und Wunderkammer, they were used. So I think he was probably stimulated by his work in the collections and his general you know, intellectual veracity uh, to take on the, the fascinating topic uh, of these peculiar kinds of collections that he did. And then he developed into a much larger work. Now, why the Getty should be publishing it now, or the new translation, I think that there's a huge boom in interest in the history of collecting, and particular, in part, inspired by the republication of Schlosser's book, a huge interest in this topic itself of the Kunstkammer. There are like 900 publications that have been written on it since the second edition of 1978. It started this whole boom. It started this whole field, in a way, of history of collecting and museology. It's the initial work in many ways and for many other topics. Well, tell us about Schlosser. Tell us about his background, where he studied, and, and how he got to the position he ultimately got to to produce this book. Well, uh, Schlosser um, is, uh, what shall we say? He, he can be described as the least known famous art historian. <laughs> we can call him that. He is uh, born and he spent his entire life in Vienna, 
Uh, he studied initially, he did philosophy, and then he took up archaeology and art history in the University of Vienna. And he had sort of a parallel career in the museum and in the um, university. And the work in the museum, uh, where he was the head of the sculpture and uh, decorative arts collection, led him into contact with the history of the Habsburg collections, because at the time, the imperial collections were just that. Like the, the, the thing that's most familiar to people now would be the Queen's collections, you know, what's in Buckingham Palace and in Windsor Castle and so forth. And that, they were concentrated in a public museum, which was made for them, the Art History Museum, as it was called, which had recently opened. Schlosser went there more or less the year the museum was open, and he was a curator there, and uh, he, he rose to be director, and then he was lured away to the university. He felt it was his duty to take over the university. But this book came out of uh, his work in the museum. It's a book that involves objects and intense study of the objects and familiarity with them. And then, particularly considering that this book was published in 1908, an extraordinary knowledge of sources. Not only published sources, but he knew about unpublished documents, or he knew about rare uh, works. And uh, that is characteristic of his scholarship, that he's someone who both worked on individual objects, but he is responsible for the still unequaled uh, guide to the literature of uh, art, which has gone through three editions, not available, unfortunately, in English, but it's still, you know, the best sort of general introduction to the literature of art, as he called it. And um, so that combination led to the creation of, of this book. Plus, he had a huge, broad, voracious uh, intellectual appetite. So he knew about a large number of fields and subjects, and he drops names and ideas all over the place in these uh, works. And the first pages of interest he's referring to literature, psychology, philosophy, music, uh, and so forth, and in many languages. So all of that goes together. In, into the composition of this book, which appropriately is dealing with universal collections. So it's a kind of one of the last universal scholars, so we say, he was dealing with this. What was art history like then, and who, who were his art, art history peers? Well, this is uh, uh, one of the, um, what shall we say, the first uh, golden age of art history, the beginning of art history. Uh, many of the art history departments in Europe were established from the 1860s, 1870s on. Uh, that is particularly in the Central Europe. Uh, it's a really the serious generation that gets going around 1900. And many of the famous people who listeners may have heard of were his peers. And those include Heinrich Werflin, Alois Riegel, uh, Wilhelm Voringer, Max Horzak, uh, Max Friedlander, and museums, Wilhelm von Bode, and of course, A.B. Warburg. And Schlosser knew many of them, as either had studied with them or were uh, friendly with them, as uh, he was with Warburg, or Warburg, uh, and um, certainly with Dvorak. And his teacher was Franz Vikoff, who is one of the so-called founders of the 
so-called uh, Vienna School. Now, uh, what art history was like was uh, very much in the making. And um, the direction that one can say is represented by um, Schlosser is a kind of clarity of uh, thinking about things and um, philological, that is to say the use of languages and the critique of documents and texts as well as the study of objects and all of that empirically. And all of that was being put together, not only by him, but by many of these people into broader or more general theories and broader views of the history of art so that these things were not separate, art theory or art criticism and practice. You mentioned the the Vienna School, and don't want to give people listening to the podcast the impression that there is a particular school. I mean, that, that is a, a building associated with this, but there's a way of doing art history that distinguished Viennese efforts uh, from those of in Italy or those in France or those in Britain or those in the United States. Why was there such a distinctive group of art historians pursuing art history differently than others? Well, that's an interesting question. And of course, it's Schlosser himself who coined this term, the Vienna School, in a famous article. And I think what he meant by school was people who were educated in Vienna. So there are many aspects to the so-called school, but uh, one could say that there is this combination of a kind of empirical side to it and the theoretical side. And that even applies to Schlosser's antagonist and someone he doesn't mention, Joseph Stuskowski. And um, basically, the Vienna School, uh, they had two chairs that uh, were set up because Schlosser and Stuskowski were antagonistic. The whole field of art history, in one way or another, grew out of what these people did, including interest in other areas of the world, uh, into which art history is now practiced, has expanded. So the Vienna School just means really, according to Schlosser, those people who were educated at the University of Vienna in art history, because he traces it from the beginnings to his students. And the last students are the last students, but two are uh, someone who is a very famous Ernst uh, Gombrich and Otto Kurtz. So you mentioned Gombrich, and you were a student of Gombrich. So you, are you therefore in the Vienna School? Uh, no, <laughs> so, except indirectly. Although I do say in the beginning that I feel somewhat indebted to this, that I regard Schlosser as a kind of grandfather, because I was interested in him from the time when I was only two years with Gombrich so doing masters. But it was a very important time at the Warburg for me. And uh, I do have a lot of respect for Schlosser, and particularly for what Gombrich respected him for, which was his tremendous erudition. There are other things that I, I don't share with him. And uh, there's a difference between, you know, the early people, the second group, and then the third group, which goes on. So, and now in Vienna, you know, they probably would want to think of themselves as carrying on this great tradition. But I, although I did my dissertation in Vienna, and I certainly attended classes in historiography. I never uh, particularly, um, you know, let's say, 
got on with or agreed with the ideas of people like Otto Pest, who was then teaching. Well, let's get to the text, Art and Curiosity Cabinets of the Late Renaissance. You, you say that the text's temporal focus on the Late Renaissance was in keeping with the interest at the time in late styles. Why the interest in late styles? What do you mean by late styles? And was it just simply the matter of the fact that it was the turn of a century that uh, changed the way one thought about things? Or was there something more profound than that? Um, the interest, I would say, quite specific. We might think of the book Late Roman Art Industries by Regal, the idea of um, late Roman or late medieval. Those are ideas that were coined at the time. And late Renaissance is another one of them. Late Renaissance then became Mannerist or even Baroque. And late antique then became um, an idea of late antiquity. Is there something that characterizes something as late in late style and in appearance? What happens, I think, is that if one thinks about uh, art history as um, biological metaphors or development and it grows and then it, it flourishes and then it decays and dies, I think it was the idea of decay and deterioration and decadence that, well, you see that in hindsight because all of um, Europe, the old Europe, died. It was ended by the horrors of the First World War. And great empires, like the Russian Empire or Austria-Hungary in this instance, or even the German Empire, ceased to exist. And the new nation-states took their place. It's a period in which things passed away. And in a way, the culture before the First World War also left because there were so many people, you know, so many men who died in the First World War. And there's that notion that's attached to it. But the idea of that this was decadent, there was an effort, I think, and we've seen this repeatedly in scholarship, to recover something which has been discarded or regarded as inferior, decadent, degenerate by looking at it in another way. And that often has happened in studies which has made possible for new things to be considered. Otherwise, um, you know, um, you wouldn't have pictures in the Getty Museum, for instance, by Pantormo and Bronzino, who would have regarded as, you know, inferior and decadent, or for that matter, by Bernini, because that's the decadent and late. It's late Renaissance, it's Baroque, it's something that's not good. So I think there's an effort to recuperate that was also going on. Now, tell us about the book's title and the words art and curiosity cabinets, or the distinction between art and curiosity cabinets. Who formulated the term curiosity cabinets and why are they distinct from art? Well, that is actually something that we um, had to use to make it something that was understood by English readers because um, the idea of art collections, if you're an English speaker, you can understand and you know about the idea of the old curiosity cabinet. And a curiosity cabinet in England or a cabinet de curiosité would approximate but not be the same thing as what Schlosser's actual title is, which is Kunst und Wunderkammer, uh, Art and Wonder Chambers. And uh, the term for Schlosser's book, he took uh, from really um, almost unique use ever in any language, which appears in two references that are applied to 
the collections of Archduke Ferdinand of the Tyrol, uh, whose collections are in Ambras near Innsbruck uh, in Austria now, and um, that refer to Kunst und Wunderkammern. And Schlosser knew these collections intimately as he had just installed them in the museum in Vienna. He had cataloged them. He'd written a guide to them. He was very familiar with these inventories, I think. And he picked up this term, which had been used previously. Kunstkammers frequently used, Wunderkammers frequently used, but Kunst und Wunderkammer not. Now, what is a Kunst und Wunderkammer? It includes both what we would call art and both, for one of a better word, we would talk about as curiosities. But curiosities, wunder, it means natural wonders, but as Schlosser points out, it includes much more because there are also scientific instruments, globes, uh, even paintings, books, manuscripts, and um, objects also which were regarded as curiosities or wonders which came from other parts of the world at the time, regarded as curiosities in Europe. But, you know, these are some of the first collections, for instance, of African and their Southeast Asian, Chinese. The earliest Chinese paintings that we know that survive in Europe on scrolls were actually in the Ambras collection. So that, that kind of thing, porcelain, Japanese art, uh, and so forth, and not to mention from the whole Islamic world, of course, because there was direct contact the Austrians had with that part of the world, and also armor. I forgot the works of armor. All those things that now would be separated out into any number of different collections were all together into this extraordinary, what you would call omnium gatherum, or potpourri, or whatever you want to say, oya podrida, of all kinds of uh, objects and works of art in some famous collections, separated out paintings collections, paintings per se, or sculpture per se. But paintings and sculpture were also in these things. But there's, as these collections themselves demonstrate, there's no firm dividing line between a work of nature and a work of art, because the works of art can incorporate shells or coconut or... uh, ostrich eggs and put a gold mount around them and make them into what we would then consider a work of art. And similarly, what we would consider scientific objects can be extremely beautiful and well-crafted, not to mention clocks, or very complicated clocks and things. And I'm not just talking about the mounts, but the whole way that it's displayed and, and the rest, the things on which the, the clocks stand or armillary spheres and other kinds of astronomical objects. So it's all together. Yeah, tell us about the patrons for this. Who were they and, and where were they? Well, um, this is a largely Central European or Germanic phenomenon. It's not that similar collections were not present elsewhere. They were. As I mentioned, curiosity cabinets were present in England, cabinets of curiosity, cabinet de curiosité in France, uh, even in Poland and so forth. And in Italy, the equivalent of this is the so-called studiolo. And in Italy and in France and in England, 
sometimes you would have noblemen, but often there would be scholars and scientists or just generally wealthy people who might have such a collection. But that's also true in Central Europe. But the difference is in Central Europe that the major princes in the empire, the major rulers from the emperor down had such collections. So it really became uh, something that everyone uh, of importance did or had to do. And this is actually articulated at the time. Not only was there, there you could call proto-theories of collecting, but uh, there also are actually stated in treatises about how you should rule, that it's necessary for a prince, for his reputation, and it is he we're talking about generally, that um, to have such a collection, to have a Kunstenwunderkammer quite specifically stated. Well, tell us about Schlosser's text and about the structure of the text. The uh, structure of the text, I think, basically, the word Kunst, I think, is important to emphasize art because I believe that Schlosser, he had trouble, and he would admit this himself, ever defining specifically what art might be. He's been a museum director, you know as well that this is very hard always to say what art is, particularly since we have so many different examples of what's, uh, what art is in museums, and particularly in the contemporary field. Anything uh, uh, can be taken in it's thought that it has a symbolic or an intentional um, aspect to it, or involves a certain um, artifactual element uh, made with skill to a certain way, or even not made with skill, just made with some thought behind it, or an image or something like that. So he, he had immense trouble defining what art was. But I think the book is about the definition of art through the history of art collecting, so that it starts with what he thought were the earliest evidences of collecting, and very acute, with animals, and then goes to early humans, but he picks up with the ancient Egypt, ancient Greece. Again, some of the Egyptian collections and Mesopotamian ones hadn't been discovered quite yet, like the great discoveries at war or King Tut hadn't been made yet. And then he goes up to the present. And it's a kind of tripartite division. One is a kind of prehistory of art. The second stage is that of the Kunst und Wunderkommen, which is the late Renaissance, or the Renaissance and then the late Renaissance development. And then the development into the modern museum, which is this, the, the light edition at the end of the book. And that's, that's, I think, the basic structure of the book. And we've talked a little bit about the Vienna School that is a group of other art historians at the time in the same general location that is in Vienna. Was he alone, though, in pursuing this particular kind of study with this particular kind of phenomena as the subject of his study? I think that there are other people definitely who picked up on this. Certainly collecting as an interest was something that other people in other countries were also interested in at this time. So Schlosser and his students were certainly interested. Uh, I think that some of the other people like Regal were, to a degree, uh, Dvorak, and then uh, the other um, great people around the um, uh, museum 
certainly wrote about uh, collecting in Vienna. Now, there's been a tremendous, in the last 50 years, uh, or a little under 50 years, tremendous growth of interest in this uh, topic, but it was not very well researched uh, outside of uh, this pioneering work by Schlosser. Now, the book is published in 1908. What was its impact then? And was it a, de- a delayed impact because it has such an impact now? But was it delayed or was it de- impactful at the time? Well, the other person interested in this who published it in a series was Jean-Louis Sponzel, who was the uh, director or became director of the um, Green Vaults, the Gunnarskabeb in Dresden. So that people certainly were concerned the whole way of displaying the collections according to the historical development was, I think, picked up. And so within museums, I believe that there was some of this that was happening. But um, in scholarship, much delayed. And then probably among his students, people certainly read this book or knew about it. And uh, I think it was broadly disseminated. But, uh, you know, this was sort of a small niche area of interest, shall we say, until later, until very much later. Now, why was the book not translated into English until now? And was it translated in other languages from the German before English? Yes, that's a good question. It's been translated into Spanish, uh, Italian, and French, I believe. Why not into English? Again, uh, the topic didn't become fashionable until 70s, 80s. Uh, why not uh, translated uh, earlier? Schlosser was not a favorite art historian when the other people who were writing in German around the same time became favored. That is, at a time when Regal and others uh, were regarded as the critical historians of art, Regal and Werfling and so forth, Schlosser was not picked up. And um, there may be various reasons for that, but it also, I think, has to do with a general reluctance to translate things, which so long as people were capable of reading German, it's only that German general familiarity within art history or general ability of people to read it has, uh, has gone out. It's very surprising, but, you know, uh, uh, German was widely studied in the United States. Uh, then the First World War did one blow to it, and the Second World War, rightly the second, for the knowledge of the language. And also, why would you want to read something that was this old anyway? So those were some impediments. And then um, I would say that the difficulty of the text may have impeded putting some of it into English. That is because uh, Schlosser uh, writes in a language which is difficult on its own. He writes in sentences which are often as many as 10 printed lines. He writes in a German which is highly inflected by a Viennese or... um, Austrian dialect, and really, if you haven't lived there, it's hard to understand sometimes what he's talking about. And then in addition to that, there's the abundance of references that he uses, and he drops phrases without translating them. He has 
Greek and Latin and Italian and French and English all interspersed in this text. So it's uh, hard to translate. So those are all kinds of things. Now, why wasn't he picked up? Why did he remain the least known famous art historian? Although, of course, as I would suggest, there is a theoretical and uh, arc to his writing. The empirical aspect, the philological aspect, uh, and also the avoidance of a kind of way of saying, well, what art specifically is, and the strongly based historical uh, empirical aspect, were not in favor and have not uh, been in favor in the terms of the tendencies of what we could uh, identify as the intellectual trends that called attention uh, to the earlier Germanic writings to begin with. And I mean by that, the kind of theoretical or critical uh, concerns. It did not seem to people immediately that Schlusser was so much involved with that. Now, you conclude your introduction to the text by raising the question of Schlosser's anachronism in relationship to his scholarship in politics. What did you mean by that? Schlosser was regarded very much as a man out of his own time. Uh, and uh, first of all, he, he was described as a, an old-fashioned polymath, as someone who knew everything, who learned about everything. So figure out of the late 17th or 18th century. Uh, and people regarded him as that, as someone out of the 18th century, uh, both, I think, in the manner in which he talked, apparently, but in terms of his interests, and also, in a way, his respect both for the kind of scientific tradition as it communicates through empiricism, and as expressed very much in this book, uh, in his belief in science and the enlightenment and logic and his kind of opposition to the spookery, as he would have called it, you know, the, the witch's brew, as it were, that he saw represented by the Kunstkammer. In other words, he wasn't entirely enthusiastic about these collections. He thought that they impeded, you know, the development of art and a clarity of vision, which he associated with the Greeks and with art and with the high Renaissance, so that they, they were things that were not present here. He was anachronistic in that regard, and also anachronistic in that he, he really was uh, what one could say a true um, Austro-Hungarian, that is, um, he was somebody who had gained his positions through work in the imperial collections. And that was very anachronistic also, in a way, particularly after 1918, 19, when the dual monarchy ceased to exist. He's listed in the accounts of the court servants, you know, along with the ladies-in-waiting. As a curator, you were regarded that way. His honors had been in that collection. His work had been on the imperial collections. And he'd grown up, in effect, more than two-thirds of his life uh, were spent in the realm of Franz Josef, the old Kaiser, and Kurnish of Hungary, the emperor and king of Hungary, and then his uh, son, 
King Carl, Charles, who was the last of the Austrian emperors. So he comes out of that that whole world, and he presented himself as such. And I also think that the anachronism come up against the fact that if one thinks about this in regard to his political stance, well, think of what's happening at the end of his life, and that is the Nazis, the fascists, uh, Franco and Spain. These people do not respect scholarship, except when it's in the service of their own particular interest, namely racial scholarship or whatever it might be. And instead, as we know, they, they believe in the big lie. Uh, that is, that you lie and you repeat it enough and it becomes you know, a fact. So it's very much outside of his time. And he, uh, you know, his reactions at first to the Nazis were saying, oh, well, it's the disgrace of his time when, when Kurtz was beaten up in the halls of the university by Nazis. Uh, and he did not understand, I think, what was going on entirely. Well, was he a member of the party? Well, that's not entirely clear, but he may have become one at the end of his life. And that is a problematic and worrisome to, to me, I mean, because I respect him. And that's why I also said, you know, well, the defaults here. Because as I see it, he wasn't a nationalist, and they're called the German National Socialist Party. He certainly wasn't a socialist, uh, which is a National Socialist Workers' Party, and he certainly wasn't somebody who was sympathetic with the workers. And, and nor was he a member of the Austro-Fascist Party, whom he had nothing but scorn for, or the Nationalists. And what, after all, distinguishes the Nazis from others uh, is that he was... Uh, not anti-Semitic. Uh, there's no evidence of that. In fact, he, he had attracted, as it were, Jewish students, and many of his best students were either Jewish by confession or the Nazis would have considered them Jewish because their grandfathers had been. Uh, someone like Gombrich, who was actually Lutheran, but the Nazis would have done away with them anyway, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so, um, you know, he, he protected them. He sent Gombrich to England he got pest a job in Germany, which he thought at the time was less anti-Semitic than Austria. I don't know if he tried to send courts out. So, you know, why did he become a Nazi? Maybe because he was naive, as I'm suggesting. Maybe because he was just being a dutiful citizen. But I also believe that he did not believe in what was left of Austria. Austria was what they would have called a rump state. And that's partly what led to this nationalist thing. They'd lost their empire. But um, that's why I think he might have turned uh, into a Nazi. Some of his students, like Zetermeyer, became Nazis and were Nazis for their entire career, and Nazis because they were anti-Semitic also. Uh, and Martin Heidegger, who was regarded as a great philosopher and as the, you know, uh, really the source of many of these newer tendencies in contemporary thinking was also, as we know, uh, through and through a Nazi and his anti-Semitism and his Nazism affects his philosophy. That These things can now not be denied. So despite the fact that Schlosser decried the irrationality of uh, that was expressed within German traditions and certainly praised uh, reason and order and logic in this book, um, the uh, art and curiosity cabinets of the late Renaissance, he uh, 
as we went along with, where well, we don't know how much he actually believed in it, may have joined the Nazi party. And we also, I also think it needs to be said that he died soon after he joined the party. Uh, I don't know what, you know, it's hard to say what his physical or mental state was in the last months of his life. He dies in 38, so. 38, which is the year in which the Nazis took over Austria. So he died 30 years after the publication of the book. That's right. And of course, it occurred, ironically, right across the street from where he'd spent the happy years of his life in the Kunsthistorische Museum. Well, it's an extraordinary project, Tom, and, and we're grateful at the Getty to have a chance to work with you on this project and to make possible the publication of this book in English, this text in English. So thanks for giving us your time and attention on this podcast episode. It's been fascinating. Thank you. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman, with audio production by Gideon Brower, and mixing by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and more resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Or if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>